Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too, so I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, before we start the show today, I want to give a big shout out to the folks over at Loot Crate and tell you again that uh, great service, uh, $20 a month. They send you um, really cool things. It's like a Christmas every month for you. And it's all kind of uh, geek and um, fan oriented. So if you use our discount code of uh, PODSEC3, which is P-O-D, SEQ and the number three, um, once you log into um, into Loot Crate, then uh, you'll get a discount, which is great. So today in the program, what I'm going to do is we're going we're gonna to talk about something that is, again, it's a different area of kind of finding your voice as an artist and um, how to, you know, pivot from what you learn in school and what you want to do for a living and how to succeed at these types of things. And full disclosure, um, my guest this this uh, this podcast is my wife, so I want to welcome to the show um, after many many times dropping her name and talking about her on the show, uh, my wife I Honda Kennedy. Hi. And um, I makes jewelry under the name of Adnohia, and you can find her stuff on Etsy. And there are a few boutique shops um, in Los Angeles and um, in Tokyo. Kyoto. Kyoto. It's happening next month yes in japan and so she's got different lines and why i thought it'd be great to have her on the show um especially is because she's got a master's degree in architecture from sciarc which is quite well not even possibly i think undisputedly uh the most important architecture school in the world and it's a hard school to to get into the um the graduate program and a lot of people i think feel like when they go towards a specific degree that they have to follow that particular industry because of the time invested in that education. And after a stint in architecture, um, I decided to pivot away and to use that skill set to design jewelry. And I think it's an interesting way of looking at how you can really take a skill set and apply it to multiple different things. And many of the guests that we've had on the show are people who started in one end of uh, creativity and wound up finding what it was that was sort of their bliss and making that success. So um, let's dig into your history a little bit. <laughs> and um, I think that it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, obviously you grew up in Japan mm-hmm. and you grew up in Osaka. Yes. And Osaka, for those who are unfamiliar with um, with Japan, would be probably to Chicago what Tokyo is to Los Angeles or New York. I would say Tokyo is New York and Osaka is like a mix of Chicago and L.A. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a release, there's a different accent, there's a different pace mm-hmm. even. Um, I, I remember seeing somewhere online that someone had, had taken a recording of people walking in different cities and in different cities people walk at completely different paces and the pace even in japan and even in these two cities which are not super close um you know about the distance of say los angeles to las vegas maybe even shorter to tokyo to osaka yeah Father? it's more than five hours driving yeah i would say so okay so maybe san francisco los angeles to san francisco i think it's like six six hundred miles oh okay <laughs> anyway small country yeah coming from the east coast i always speak in distance of time not in miles but um the the interesting thing of course as we say is you know a different accent different pace and a different sensibility and i think a lot of people who listen to japanese music that isn't j-pop if they listen to japanese psychedelic uh, neo-psych neo-folk indie rock that most of that music tends to come from the osaka kyoto area Mm -hmm. and it could be because there's a very different landscape and scenery that Kyoto, of course, if, if anybody who knows anything about Japan knows Kyoto is sort of as the temple district, that there's a lot of temples, there's a lot of woodland, 
and um, Osaka is a city on a canal with a river. And so it's not unlike Chicago, but it's also not unlike Amsterdam. And in, although the buildings are taller, and that that kind of, of backdrop is going to create a different type of influence. So how do you think, in your experience, knowing Japan the way that you do, that growing up where you grew up contributed to what it is that you do now and what you wanted to do? Well... I grew up in this artificial island in Osaka, so that's a very specific thing, even within Osaka. Right. And it was like, it was connected with this like huge bridge, but it was built for like industrial city or something and it didn't work and they suddenly built all the apartments so they it started out as was there a, an auto manufacturing plant or something i think that was their hope yeah. like they wanted to invite some manufacturing companies or something and it didn't happen so i grew up with like i don't know thousand students in elementary school mm -hmm. but Next closest elementary school was like three minutes away, mm -hmm. and they also had like thousand students. And we didn't have really like it was an ocean, but we didn't really have nature, mm. you know, because it was so, it was completely man-made. Yeah, like concrete blocks all right. over. So I think I don't know, and I didn't go to like center of Osaka till I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen, mm -hmm. and by the time I was going to school in Kyoto already. So I think the experience is a little different, but that sense of kind of futuristic um, city, like, so we had public transportation that was automated. So it was train without operator. Right. And, it and was what year is this? 19, well, I was born in 82, so like in 80s. Yeah. So that's automated trains in the eighties <laughs> in Japan, folks. You didn't know that was going to happen on this podcast. So uh, part of the education here. So I think I always had these like, um, um, I don't know the word. Like I really wanted to get the feeling of nature, but at the same time, I was already um, prone to futuristic things like. 3d printing or whatever i do mm -hmm. now like you know the image from um tezuka's manga like metropolis or something i was right. always dreaming of that this is interesting because if you look at say zumtor mm -hmm. the um the great swiss architect and the person who will be working on the new lacma the new los angeles contemporary um, museum of art um he's been given the project and they did an amazing retrospective on his different projects um i highly um, recommend anybody unfamiliar look him up online and it's Z-U-M-T-H-O-R I believe or T-O-R I, I shouldn't say anything and um, but he grew up in that kind of post-World War II Europe and um, in that Germanic part of the world and so mixing concrete and wood with nature but having it be a very distinct structure is very much a part of his work and i know that you're a fan of his and, and he's probably my favorite architect but the um because you grew up around so much concrete at such an early age it's going to become part of those early memories not only of home but of every experience mm -hmm. and i know that you love concrete i do concrete and you don't see a lot of strictly concrete buildings in los angeles that's true um like, I always love concrete and steels, and that's why I want to go to Berlin someday. Yeah. But we don't see that in L.A. just because of climate, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the, um, I guess there there is enough, or there was at a certain point, enough um, wood and forest and other things with, with enough different types of climates that the the landscape in Los Angeles looks a little bit schizophrenic at times. But... um. You know, without getting too far along in that thought, the the process of seeing things at that right age and being in an area that's kind of known for being so close to part of the most beautiful part of nature, but being so far removed from it mm -hmm. on this kind of sci-fi man-made island, 
Um, and then at a certain point, your family moves closer into Osaka. Uh, closer to Kyoto, so we moved to a more rural area of like. So we passed through the center of Osaka and went northern side of Osaka Prefecture. Which is like the Brentwood of Osaka. Well, it's mountainside for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's also very populated. So it's not like, you know, it's a, a cabin in the woods. I mean, this is, there's... It's a very suburb. Like, yeah. So many houses. Lots of houses. Yeah. Um, there's an aquarium near that area. And so you're, you're also very close to the more proper, large form, touristy, world heritage sites of Kyoto. Mm-hmm. And this happens at age... Uh, 13. 13. 12, 13. Okay, so you're really starting to, to transfer that, you know, that, that area, you know, the when you start to become aware of what it is that you want to do with your life, at least in theory. Um, I, I guess, I mean, so we were, we were living in this um, Oceanside apartment, and then we moved once to get closer to my school, mm-hmm. the junior high school. Then we moved again, and it's like so many moving happening, and I I enjoyed looking at those house plans to mm-hmm. look for, but then I never found the house I wanted to live in. Right. And that's when I like started sketching out things in the way I want, and that's when I realized I really want to, I don't know, design, not like designing house but designing structure living designing space living environment right city so more environmental design necessary than say construction but um another thing that people probably don't realize is that japan unlike the united states and a lot of other countries actually is is odd in that their real estate market is the exact opposite model of the united states that a home and a home purchase is a negative investment. Yeah, because it only lasts for 20 years. They demolish. Yeah, so almost every um, living structure is demolished after 20 years and almost assuredly within 30 years. And because perhaps that so much of um, Japanese society is about kind of fitting in and being the same, that the one place where you can really leave your mark is where you live. That if, if you, you buy a house and you build a house, you're building exactly what it is that you want and since people generally live in houses for maybe 20 to 30 years at a time in Japan that they're going to move out, the next person is going to want to take down that structure and build a new structure. And it's also about marketing, I think, because we have so many earthquakes, they always find like new structure and they sell you like, oh, this is better. You should build a right. new one. So, Which would seem to be the opposite. Like, well, hey, you know, I'm buying this, this house with the idea that I'm only going to be here 20 years. And if you're telling me that it's going to be around forever, it's going to be harder to take down. But the, the walls are thinner in Japan. Um, buildings aren't as insulated as in the U.S. because there's less space. So there's less room for things like insulation. That's a good point. I didn't think about it. Mm. But we we care more about humidity than, um, you know, the right. temperature or whatever. So. so the wood has to be the type of wood that's it from has Japan. To be open actually. Yeah. Yeah. And um and the power in in certain electronics like washing machines and dryers. Well, not washing machines, but dryers seem to dry way less. Like there's a wattage control in Japan for really? industrial uh, machinery. It takes forever to dry a shirt in a, in, a, in a dryer in Japan. That's why everybody hangs their laundry outside. It's just, you might as well be hanging it outside. I think that's the space issue, actually. Yeah, but Having I mean, it's... dryer is just wasting space. Anyway. But even when you go to like a hotel, say, and you want to use the washer and dryer there to, to clean your clothes before it goes in your luggage, you got to start two days early because <laughs> it never gets dry. And I looked and, and it certainly, and it is lower wattage. It's got a, a different power output. And I think because... The, um, and one of the reasons why Japan went nuclear is because it was an easily available form of power, whereas there's not oil, there's not coal. Um, almost all of Japanese energy um, resource is imported. And so um, most people may, may, may be surprised to learn that the number one heating source for every home in Japan is kerosene. And it's um, it's oil that goes into space heaters that plug into the wall or use um, – don't plug into the wall, actually, but use uh, gas cartridges, 
which is not something that people in the U.S. would really dream of ever having. Because we don't have central heater. Right. There's no central air, basically. You know, heater per room kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that happens more. So that's... It has to be portable. So these things being very, very different from the United States, and then you go to school, you graduate in Japan. Well, no, before you graduate to Japan, you participate in a... A study abroad program, a sort oh, of... Oh, in high school? Yes. Yes, I did one-year exchange. Yeah. So you were an exchange student, and you didn't go to Los Angeles, you didn't go to New York, <laughs> well, you didn't go to San Francisco, you didn't go to Seattle, which would be the cities that would be most likely to have um, a Japanese support system. You wound up instead in... Bowen, Missouri, which is like 30 minutes from St. Louis. St. Louis, so um, which is very different. Right. And you don't get to choose. When you do high school exchange program, mm-hmm. you don't get to choose city. Right. Like basically, if they find family somewhere, then they just send you there. And the idea is actually you don't want to speak to Japanese people for the entire year. Right. To learn the culture. Right, right. And so the family that you wound up staying with, what was their name? Uh, Hoffmans. The Hoffmans. The Hoffmans had, had been frequent participants in the foreign exchange student program? No, I was actually their first one. Oh, wow. Okay. And after me, they had three or four, I believe. So right. I hope that means they loved me. But <laughs> and, and obviously, you're still very close with them. Yes, they yes, came to our they wedding. They came to our wedding. And, um, and, but it's a very different mindset than, say, most of the cities. And most of the cities that you would think of as being architect cities. And now you can add a few cities onto the list of what you maybe thought of before, like the, the fastest growing cities in the United States now are Houston, San Diego, um, Las Vegas, and I'm, I'm sure actually Buffalo, New York is probably on there now, and probably Detroit, although in Detroit it's going to be a lot of teardown and rebuild. Um, so when you think about this, and you had already at, at this point in high school felt like you were going to be going to architecture school. I knew I wanted to be an architect, and I knew, because, so I went to school, if you entered junior high, you could go to college. We didn't have to study anything Mm -hmm. afterwards for 10 years. And I knew the university I was going to go didn't have the Department of Architecture. Right. And so I was thinking, because I didn't want to study. Right. Everybody wants the time off. This was a really big uh, news point in the late 80s and early 90s that um, in Japan, of course, kids go to school six days a week, not we five. We still did, yes. Yeah. I did. And um, and certainly in China, kids are going to school seven days a week. But um, that all this hard work and then kids would major in tennis or table tennis or like really disposable things that they, they had no intention of doing. But also what's different about Japanese culture is that you're not assured a full education to the age of 18, that you have to take a test in junior high school that says you get to go to high school. Mm. Well, yes, to enter high school, you have to take exam. And if you don't Usually. pass a certain score, you don't go to high you school. You don't go. Well, there's always a school that can accept. Yeah. But, yes. And then yes, that probably costs money. So it's got like a high school diploma mill, not something that you would ever think <laughs> about in the U.S. We, you know, we talk about art schools and certain types of education as being diploma mills here in the U.S., uh, for-profit universities. So certainly in Japan, there's going to be for-profit high schools sure. just so that these kids don't be considered completely, Right. Um, I don't want to use the word useless, but um, that a lot of times the jobs available to kids who haven't made it in high school. There's none. It's real. It's a real low bar. It's like passing out coupons in front of Subway. Yeah, I guess. And I'm talking about the sandwich shop, not, you know, (laughs) the actual Subway. And not a lot of growth potential. But also that the um, the cost of living is structured differently and and kids can generally stay with, with their parents until they get married. That's accepted. Yeah, it's parents' responsibility to send kids to college. Yeah, yeah. But because of that, again, because you have to kind of make those decisions a lot earlier in life, 
it can either give kids an extreme drive or it can give them this feeling like you you had and certainly many people did that it's like I can't wait for my my vacation my college vacation Mm -hmm. which would allow you to not have to be studying six days a week and that type of thing right once like usually if people go to once they enter college Mm -hmm. that's when they start doing part-time jobs and go to school and 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 start looking for a job I guess the real job experiencing life to experience life later I guess so you decide that you're going to you know that you had a knack for drawing these living spaces and you you decide to pursue architecture and you did something which I think is really really smart and something that I generally recommend to everybody that if you know you're going for a degree beyond a bachelor's if you're going for a master's or you're going for a doctorate that your postgraduate studies where you get your degree is much more important for your postgraduate work than for your okay. graduate work or graduate work compared to undergrad work. right and graduate compared to undergrad yep. so it doesn't make a lot of sense to say spend the money for five years at a very very expensive college when you can get a really good education at a much less expensive school with a good mm-hmm. reputation in the field and then try and transfer into one of the top 10 schools mm-hmm. so that when you present a paper it's like you know with your credentials on it the only thing they look at is your last the last place you went to school and if you've got SciArc on your last piece no matter what you have before that you're going to be okay and you did go to a good school before that but you spent four years at UTA right? UT Arlington yeah which is in Dallas-Fort Worth area. Yeah, so the um, University of Texas in Arlington and a, a well-regarded architecture school, engineer yes. school. Um, it was all right, architecture school, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And so rather than spend what would have been crazy money in the Ivy League, um, which a lot of kids do, you know, and they'll, they'll still do their four years at very, very expensive schools and have to pay back, you know, between a quarter of a million and a half a million dollars in, in student loans and then do their... Um, the graduate and postgraduate studies, you kind of get the type of education that you can at least get on the radar of a really good school and then go and graduate. It's really hard to know before you go, though. Like, right. I had no idea what I was going to do in architectural school. Mm-hmm. And I definitely didn't know that we didn't have to do engineering right. in architecture school. Which always surprised me. I mean, now it makes sense to me. Right. But, but um, I, I feel... <laughs> I feel that it's it's sort of socially it's irresponsible. Be, no, 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 it's gonna be a long conversation, but like, right. like. Well, let, let, let me follow that down before <laughs> before we get there. That I feel it's it's socially irresponsible to give degrees in architecture without degrees in engineering, because you still need to hire an engineer if you're an architect. It's like movie director, and yeah, it's like being a movie director who can't handle a camera. Right. So we know the basics for sure. Mm-hmm. But if we have to, let's not get into this. <laughs> but just, I, yeah. I understand. I understand. <laughs> and, and, and of course, with, with SciArc, it's also a matter of a lot of theoretical architecture and kind of what right. made put that school Exploring in the map. Exploring new possibilities right. with new technology and techniques. Yes. And presenting, in most cases, in every grad show that I've seen thus far, structures that cannot be built. Yeah. At all. I mean, that's our last chance to do that. I guess. Well, I guess so. Unless you go into like movie industry, which many people do actually. Right. But it makes sense that because you had that particular background, Mm -hmm. it made it easier to jump into jewelry or into other types of creative work because a school which puts such an importance on hypothetical work doesn't really prepare you to work on actual building the actual building and so that's there's a, a great degree of freedom there and I can understand the appeal and having been to that school and the type of equipment that they have and the type of education you get there are so many schools that that have this idea that they're not going to teach you how to do something they're going to teach you how to think and when I hear that it makes me crazy but at SciArc that actually seems to work yeah that they are really teaching you not how to think but they're teaching you to think wider than you would have ever considered and I don't think that most art schools do that I think art schools have a very rigid format and a lot of the professors become gurus in a way and you have a lot of schools 
that produce a class of painters that paint like their professor. And um, certainly that's true in the architecture field that if you have that certain students will say side up or um, become get the attention of a certain professor and they start producing work like that. Mm-hmm. But at SciArc in particular, and maybe a handful of other schools, and you, you're probably talking about schools in Switzerland, um, and you know, in Bern or in, or in London, Zurich, yeah. London, that, um, that they have this kind of, no, we want you to think way wider than we thought, and here's how this can work for you. Well, one thing I have to say, and I don't think they appreciate this, but I don't recommend SciArc for undergrad education. Right. So, I mean, if you go to art center, I think that's their, like, undergrad usually, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't really see their grad school presentation. I know that exists, but... um, Right. So, most of us already did, like, very basic architecture in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, but many of us, um, many of them other students worked in the actual field mm-hmm. for like two, three years. Mm-hmm. So after the basic of knowing, knowing the rules and knowing how to build building, that's when you can expand right? to think outside box. I think. Well, yeah, I, I think that most people will agree that you should know the rules before you start breaking them so and that you're not breaking them accidentally. You're deciding right. purposely. I think, I think the problem you are having with other art schools they don't start from there. Right. Like they just start with like, let's think. Yeah. And think what? Yeah. Without knowing. Correct. Yeah, and, and that's that's going to be a concern. So the um, but because you have this sort of unique way of learning your field, mm-hmm. and you start to work, and and the, because of the age mm-hmm. that that you are and the years that you were there, it's right when the types of programs that are now regular in the field of architecture and 3D modeling, these were brand new. So you're kind of on the ground floor of learning things like Maya and and those types of programs. And so because it's a brand new thing, um, it may have been easier for you to see the application of that for other things before it became too locked into being a specific thing. Probably. I mean, I don't know how long they had been teaching that. Mm-hmm. I, I went to school 2006, I have to think. At SciArc. Yeah. yeah. So I that's entered, after four I years. I entered SciArc yeah. 2006. But um, yeah, in my, in my undergrad, like they were professors who still valued hand-drafted drawings, mm-hmm. which I understand. And handmade models. Handmade models. I did that for four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't like CAD drawing. and Didn't like what? CAD drawing. What's the com- that? Computer-aided drawing. Okay. Because it doesn't show your character in lines, I guess. <laughs> Interesting. Like So it's more they, like drafting than it is yeah, anything they, else. I mean, all talented architects, at least like 10, 20 years ago, they were great drafter yeah they they made such beautiful drawing if you see zaha's hand-drawn drawings like mind-blowing and a a drawer full of different pencil sizes widths and hardnesses but then in school then professors get confused good drafter to good architect right which is inverse yeah yeah you know but that was like my four years and i've never seen 3d printer i've never seen we didn't even have laser cutter in undergrad. At that point, in 2006, wow. And I was just doing, you know, basswood and exacto knife and mm-hmm. whatever. And so it was like, you know, that's why I went to SciArc, I think, like extreme opposite. I wanted to try. Right. And then I had such tough time because everything was... Completely brand new. Completely brand brand new like it was too new i that there wasn't even anybody who can say well this is how you use this because they're figuring out at the time that this is coming out I as mean, well all the professors were knowledgeable and they were all great tas and other students actually came from school with a little bit of digital education mm-hmm. but it was just like i think it took me more than a year to get used to that before i can actually Think about architecture again. Right. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this, because you had obviously gone to UTA. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you start thinking about SciArc? 
fourth year. So it was your last year as、mm-hmm. you're graduating, and、mm-hmm. you, and you knew you were gonna like, go. Whenever the deadline for application, I don't remember these things. And you're like, oh, well, I'm gonna apply at SciArc. Yeah. Because it's the best school in the world. Because it was different.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's another thing for consideration. I think a lot of people. Don't do the proper research before they enter a graduate program, and certainly、mm-hmm. we're seeing at USC、mm-hmm. and the Roski School right now、um, some real bad feedback from the、um, the fine arts department and pushback. And、um, for people who are unfamiliar with this, you can you can search out the controversy that's going on at the USC Roski School that an entire、um, graduate class、uh, dropped out in solidarity against the appointment of. A musician to oversee their visual arts degree, and one person who stayed in the program just dropped out last week, and、um, cited the exact same types of criticisms of the program that、um, her predecessors had, and that one of the things that you go for in a master's program is peers and the peer critique. And that type of feedback that you can、um, you can learn the direction of your work and or get used to defending it.、Um, anybody who goes to art school knows about the critiques. And when you get into a a master's program or a doctorate program, the、um, the degree and level of expectation is higher, and your ability to articulate what it is about your specific method or body of work has to be of a very high level. And you can't get there if you don't have other people who are competing、um, in a friendly way. I don't think you're really competing against each other for any particular spot, you know, in the world. But that、um, that you're both you you all want to achieve the same things. And this this one student who was、um, from South Korea got a complete a full scholarship,、um, dropped out of the program, citing that、um, it, it did not deliver on what it promised to be. And this is a very I think it's a lot more common than people understand that the programs aren't what they promise to be for the money that they cost. So knowing what you know now and having been to SciArc, what do you think about that? That it's also one of the more expensive schools、mm-hmm. in the world. A private university,、um, but you did and, and still had access at that time to some of the really well-known people. And if they didn't actually work on In classwork, some of them were still on the board and would occasionally show up and, and give talks, so、and、that juries, you, yes, yeah, yes, and they would jury the、yeah. um the classes. So having access to people like Zaha, and、uh, Zumtor, and um the Broad um, um Gary, that um. You know that there's going to be this automatically an elevated level to what you're doing. If you get a critique from people who are that well known, these Pritzker Award winners, it's, it's really the point to point of going to a good school is to talk to these people before you graduate. Right.、Um, Which is why people are going to UCLA to take classes. Right. With, that's that's why people go to GSD、uh, Harvard Design School.、Mm-hmm. That's the point. You get the best professors, the best architects. Who can just critique your work?、Mm-hmm. And I mean, really, when you enter grad school, although I didn't, you should know what you want to do and what you want to explore.、Mm-hmm. So, where do you want to go? Is not as important, except. You get the name on resume, and you get the best critiques. Yeah, the value of of the school and its standings.、Right. And so,、um, one of the the criticisms that、uh, the student from South Korea gave to the Roski School is that they had fallen down to number sixty nine. Yeah, which is a huge, huge fall for that school. And、um, and they, they, I guess they're trying to put it back together. We'll see how it works out. But moving forward from from SciArc、mm-hmm. and. Entering the world, and and you did work for、um, for some architects. Yes, I did. And <laughs> I mean, people need to hear this, so you got to talk about this. So,、uh, what's it like to be the graduate of of a, of Syrac with a master's degree in architecture, and then go to work for a quote unquote known architect? But before you give that answer, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. This is worth waiting for. So we're going to、um, stop very briefly for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back、um, on a podcast with Adnohia. AKA I Honda Kennedy,、uh, talking about、um, 
changing focus um, after a an expensive education and changing fields. So we'll be right back after a moment. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are speaking today with Adnohia, aka I Honda Kennedy, uh, who is in uh, full disclosure my wife, and um, we're talking about um, switching gears creatively, um, going from a specific background and following a particular education, and now we're getting to the part where you have the credentials. You've got the education and you're entering the real world and you start to think about whether or not this is something that you actually want to do and how to make that education still valuable. So right before the break, I asked you to talk about what it was like to graduate from possibly the best architecture school in the world with a master's degree in architecture and enter into the field that you had chosen. So you're working for an architect, a name, you know, air quotes around name architect. What's it like for a, a fresh graduate? Well, well, you know, it was interesting at the beginning. You mentioned many people feel like you know, after you get degree, you have to follow the field, and that was really the struggle I had for longest time. Mm-hmm. And um, by the way, I I suffered depression when I was in grad school. Mm-hmm. So I actually took a year off before graduating grad school. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> two days before my graduation, I was like, I cannot go out world like this. So right. I took a year off and I came back and I finished my thesis and I graduated. But because of the undergrad education I had mm-hmm. and then completely different education I had at SciArc, I kind of went back to... I was not. I was not interested in those like um, computer-generated, huge sculpture type of architecture anymore. I mm. wanted to go back to like um, city cityscape and like unique houses and like something more um, context-driven, I should say, mm-hmm. than what we did in SciArc. But because I took year off. I couldn't stay in the States of of my visa issue. And so I had to go back to Japan and I went to work for this architect in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So Fujimoto. And I loved his work. I searched his work when I was doing thesis and Mm -hmm. I was like, this is the guy I was going to work for. And one thing we have to know about architecture, well, architecture firm in Japan is you don't get paid. Mm. There is so-called open desk mm-hmm. and it's internship with no pay. Right. So they don't check your, some firms do, but they don't check your portfolio. They just welcome you. Yeah, because it's free labor. And they use you. Yeah. <laughs> and if you, I mean, of course, if you are talented, if you get along with their, their head architect, you get to stay, you get paid a little bit, like $1,000 per month maybe mm-hmm. but you know you don't get to pay for like at least for three months mm-hmm. and i was still struggling with my depression and i have this feeling of like i have to keep going mm-hmm. in architecture field and i i just have to do it but after three months it's it was just impossible a lot of people could maybe compare this to the residency that medical doctors have to take after their graduation from med school, that they've gone through the school, they've gone through the hard work, they know how to do stuff, and now they have to work crazy, stupid hours at very low pay for two years to establish residency in order to make it even to a private practice. That it's it's kind of, it's just part of the process. It is relentless. It is often soul-destroying. Um, it's ironic that they're doctors because that type of activity is a direct detriment to their health, physical and mental health. And in competitive areas like architecture, where even those free open desk situations are highly fought over, people are Mm -hmm. like 
battling for the opportunity for the, and I'm going to air quote this, the pleasure and privilege, (laughs) end air quote, of working for free for a famous person. Star architect. Yeah, and not even necessarily a star architect. That's true. But um, just for somebody to get that experience. And certainly the work ethic in Japan is different than the work ethic in the United States, which means that you work even longer hours because it's legal for them to make you do this. It's illegal, but... But it happens. It happens. Yeah. In the U.S., it's it's a little less common, but there's no... You don't, you don't need to give a reason to dismiss an intern. By the way, I don't... I, I hope, like, people in Japan don't listen to this podcast and go check the firm I worked for because <laughs> I mentioned the name. <laughs> well, that's okay. Don't worry about it. It's all good. We're not defaming anybody. But the um like, the statute yeah. of limitations is, is probably behind us. But the um but you also worked you came back to the US. Uh you mean recently? Well, before you'd also worked for a couple of firms here in LA. When when I was in grad school, yes. Okay. I did like summer internship. Right, right. And so there were there was several places where relatively famous people would stop by all the time. That's what I heard. I didn't see any of them. Yeah. Brad Pitt's a huge fan of, of architecture and of star architects and frequently visits several of them. And uh, I've sold him many a book, um, expensive uh, book on architecture. It's kind of his passion. It's what he loves. Um, and there's other people like him. And certainly where we're located in the Los Feliz area, there's a lot of sort of star architect little shops and hubs mm-hmm. and um and you were at one or two of those i think at a certain point but it, it's a relentless it's a relentless job and so when you after this internship in japan mm-hmm. you kind of realized i don't think i can do this yeah i mean and, and the thing is you know when i hit like 450 hours per month mm-hmm. my my mental, like, my, my head just shut down. Everybody do that math. I couldn't do it. Most people's work months is 1,600 hours. What? Uh, 160. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, 100, 160, hours, 160 hours a month um, in, in a 40-hour-a-week job. And so... But then there are other people who is working longer hours than I do. Yeah. So it's really... I, it just made me feel like I was a loser. Well, I, I know this for a fact. So there was like, I, I had, I've worked several different types of jobs and, and many of them were salaried positions. And there's this idea that the person who sits at their desk the longest <laughs> has won. It's this weird American mentality. It's like, if you work longer hours than everybody else, you win, except of course you lose. And, and then there's this kind of misperception that being there for a long time means that you're getting stuff done. And I've often found that it's completely opposite of the truth, that efficiency is performed in a way that you don't have to work long hours. I still hear people saying like, oh, I didn't sleep last night. And they brag about it. (laughs) And it's like, that's dumb. You know, it took me a really long time to reach the point in my life where I, I understood that working long hours was not good, that you didn't want to brag about it. Mm-hmm. You know, some people like to say, oh, I'm so busy. You hear people say that all the time in LA. What have you been up to? Oh, I'm so busy. And it's like, so what have you been up to? Like, what have you actually <laughs> done? What have you accomplished? What are you proud of? You know, that it's it's kind of a, a weird, it's, what's the opposite of a humble brag? I mean, it's like, it's like bragging about something awful in a way. I don't know. I'm looking over at my producer, um, at Mason, and he's he's just he's just smiling. He's like, I don't know, I don't know, I can't tell you, but um, it's this is a really big problem, especially in the United States, but elsewhere as well, and definitely in Asia, especially in Japan, and and also probably in Korea, that um, being there for long hours is sort of expected, regardless of your output, so that if you can do in four hours what it takes someone else sixteen hours to do. You still got to hang in there. Mm-hmm. And that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'll, I'll anyway. pick up from there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking? So after after I stopped working for that firm, I thought I was taking a break for a few months. Mm-hmm. And I was going to get get back into the field. But mm-hmm. I just, 
whenever I tried to put up my portfolio together, I just couldn't, mm-hmm. and so I just stopped. Mm-hmm. And there was a time I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Thanks, parents. And and then I started doing part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And I eventually found, well, really, my parents re- found me a job to work for this company who had office in Japan and office here. Mm-hmm. And that's when I came back, like, four years ago. Mm-hmm. But you had also worked in jewelry shops in Japan. I did a uh, short time, like Christmas sales. So you and you have a really specific, elegant taste and style. But yeah, I I enjoyed making jewelry since I was ten. Mm-hmm. And so, at what point did you start making work for sale? Last year. Last year. <laughs> I mean, no, but you had an Etsy I, store, right? I started selling my work when I was in high school mm-hmm. because being in Kyoto, you could just catch random high school kids from other <laughs> like rural area who is visiting for um, whatever, like school travel. Mm-hmm. And I would just talk to them and sell my jewelry, making with bees and stuff. Nice. So I, I really enjoyed doing that, but it was a hobby. Mm-hmm. It was not, you know, something I would do for a living. Mm-hmm. But when I when I'm working for this company, it was printing company, and it was really corporate. I just realized I we won't say their name. No, <laughs> they're in Torrance, <laughs> <laughs> which still doesn't tell you much. A Japanese printing company in Torrance, there could be dozens, but um, certainly it was not an easy place to work. It was different for me. Yeah. I think it was different from everybody. I visited that office. It was surprising because I thought I would do okay mm-hmm. in like structural environment. Well, if it's not structural. But That's the problem. <laughs> I would do okay in corporate environment. Mm-hmm. But I just realized I couldn't live without making something. Right. And not just as a hobby, but really making something. And I was, I, I kept thinking about architecture. I, I kept thinking about going back, but. I just didn't know after so many years. Mm-hmm. And, and then you're fighting for internships with kids that are fresh out of school. and Like with your software yeah. knowledge and everything. Yeah. And I, it's not like I built a um, skill set or mm-hmm. experience. So I was just thinking about it. But one day I just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And I was like, I quit. Yeah. And I did. So like, But also at that point you had been working on on designs you had you had been putting some time into and, and this, is, this is a smart thing for people to do i think like I, i've said this a lot that if you have a job that is kind of crushing your spirit and you have a creative output often that creative output develops because you have this other thing that you're unhappy with and dedicating the time to something that brings you joy can make the work better mm-hmm. in and of itself and then helps take your mind off or at least gives you something to look forward to after you get through that day of just mundane, you know, torture, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And um, and I think that a lot of artists have, have been in this position. I certainly see people posting about it on Facebook and in social media. And what I always say is that you want to keep that job until you don't have to keep that job. If it's a job that you hate and you do want to get out of there, but you want to have something to be able to do. And so when you did leave the printing company and mm-hmm. you started dedicating time to um, to making jewelry, mm-hmm. you also had to come up with a way to set up a structure for your day and have um, kind of goals to hit in order to be able to bring that forward. And that's also really difficult. Right. I don't think I had a plan like... You know, I don't think it was ideal situation to quit the job. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, I I didn't know what to do. I I just stopped working to dedicate time for making because I have like making jewelry was like rehab for me. Right. So when I couldn't make portfolio for a long time, I was not doing anything. Then at one point, I realized I can work for someone else. Like making renderings and making like quick 3D models mm-hmm. for other people and other, you know, someone else's work. 
And now you can tell tell um, people who want to create their own work how they too can get a free um, a free copy of design software, and it's by um, working <laughs> for other people. Else. Is that they will often say, "Oh, well, this isn't compatible with what we work," and they'll give you a fully not a cracked, a full legal version of their program. Sometimes. So that's that's think about that. That's a good piece of advice. So I was slowly, slowly making these things, and I can't remember actually how I found out I can make jewelry. Like, jewelry industry actual actually have been three D printing for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's not anything new. Mm -hmm. Any any like commercial products, they just three D print and. But the access to the certain types of materials availability started to change in that time, so that before right. you could sculpt in certain types of metals, but maybe not precious metals. No, no, no. I mean, like any like engagement ring you see, right? They are three D printed in wax, yeah. But they were using like you know their jewelry software, which is traditional, like I don't know, boring design. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think I think like in the last few years, people started using different software mm -hmm. and combining those technology, like. Like Maya, you know, mm -hmm. like we in architectural school, we started using Maya and um, using a 3D printer to make our our, our models. Mm -hmm. And finally, people started combining those things with Jolie and making something interesting because it's buildable. Right. But, um, but also what you, what you do and the type of jewelry that you make is a combination of almost everything that we've discussed. So there's a fascination with living things in nature mm -hmm. and a fascination with the kind of ubiquitous, ubiquitousness mm -hmm. <laughs> of form. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think that architecture is a really specific area to give someone an economy of design aesthetic mm -hmm. that nobody in modern architecture likes very Baroque, grotesque um, design and so when you see jewelry that's designed like that, it's clearly not from somebody that has an architecture background. That what you see more often, if this is a case where these two things line up, mm -hmm. is that there is a structure. Mm -hmm. and a Cleaner, structural. Clean economy line. Yeah. And so that the design element is elevated above a sort of show-offiness. That it's... And because of that, perhaps it's more elegant. But since you also have a fascination in some degree with things like taxidermy mm -hmm. and, um, and say, um, you know, insects and that type of thing. Right. Things I didn't get to touch when I was a kid. Right. So that you now have a new set of eyes that you get to look at these things and develop a whole different aesthetic. Mm -hmm. But it's all still part of an overall aesthetic. Like when I look at your work, there's nothing that I see that doesn't look like the same person made it. But it's very much venturing outside of what that central point will be. So if the center is in the middle of a table, some people maybe only go a couple inches outside of that circle and it all looks very similar. Yours will go to the edge of the table, but you can still see a design element that's like, oh, yeah, okay, I get that the same person did this. And you work with different materials. Mm -hmm. So you, you've been doing silver and gold and bronze and then you start doing acrylic and you can hand color the acrylic, which is kind of nice. Yeah, we can hand color, yeah. And so the um and that makes every piece unique. Yeah. So even among a three D printed format, people are getting really handmade goods. Yeah, I just didn't want to do like three D print and that's it. Right. I think it's jewelry to me is a very personal thing. I mean, I really enjoyed wearing jewelry since I was a kid too. Mm -hmm. My my mother had really beautiful ring. I'm still hoping to receive someday. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you will. <laughs> but um, so. You know, I started making jewelry as to forgive myself, really. So th there was this regret that I cannot, I couldn't pursue my architecture field. And it was just to start making something to um, ease my feeling. Right. And that was ring or any any jewelry was something that was really um closing my life mm -hmm. so I started making things and when I realized you know like especially for being from Japan as we talk building only lasts for 30 years yeah or any building 
I don't know how long it lasts, like 100 years, 200 years. Mm-hmm. And I realized like jewelry can actually go to a thousand years. Yeah. Like we excavate so many beautiful we, we things. We see pieces from Egypt. We see pieces and, from, you know, Babylonia. And I think that's kind of a neat thing. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't design cityscape to affect many people's life. But I can make this personal thing that could carry on to someone's life. Mm. And you have a really big clientele of other creative people. Yeah. Like almost everybody who has commissioned you to make work. They are artists, some of them well known. Mm-hmm. Um, there are celebrities who have mm-hmm. who've been buying your pieces and, and who have had pieces bought for them. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, um, you know, we could read through a laundry list, but, um, you know, I, I, there's a, a really great justification of one's art when people who are incredibly good at what they do see what's special about your work mm-hmm. and what you do. And yeah. I think that that's that kind of you know, the idea of the salon, the idea of a lot of really wonderful creative people coming in and and sharing ideas and enjoying each other's company, that that's something that has been good in Los Angeles. And um, and specifically, you know, in a lot of ways out in Pasadena and and where where we live, that a lot of people wound up in the same area. Um, A lot of us became close um, and we've, we've gone to each other's um, projects and openings and there's an appreciation of aesthetic even if each person's aesthetic doesn't seem to match up mm. that when in a room you can see a collective elegance a collective chicness that um, that carries over and I think that um, you know the name of this, this podcast is Pod Sequentialism and it grows out of you know the pop sequentialism um, projects that I put together which are comic book art and for years that type of thing was specifically for guys. And it was really for guys between the ages of say 15 and and 35. And with the buyer base and age base and everything changing in collectibles, and now comics are a small part of that kind of fandom that includes video games and things that you see nice little creative elements like jewelry making it into the video games and becoming mm-hmm. characteristic designs of the char- of, mm-hmm. of the characters that people play. And of course in film, there's a, always been a huge crossover between um, set designers and costume designers. Mm-hmm. And in certain types of science fiction or fantasy, the aesthetic is very pronounced. Mm-hmm. And um, I've heard somebody describe your jewelry as a kind of... Um, future noir meets future goth Hmm. and um and both fit but both don't fit that there's something just really specific and maybe it's because there's um an implementation of insect mandibles or cicada wings right i don't think it's goth i don't think it's goth in the way that it's not it's not baroque it's not over designed right but that i could see that it could be appreciated by it is dark i mean not dark dark <laughs> but you know well my my collection is named insomnia yes and, and that's in parentheses i n and then somnia right and adnohia spelled a d n o h i a it's my birth name spelled backwards yes but um and so that if if you go and look you'll 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 get a real good sense of what we're talking about and i'll definitely put a link in the um in the pop sequentialism blog so that people can access it. But it's, it's really, it's kind of its own thing. Like I don't, I think that people get caught up in trying to categorize things that are difficult to categorize until something comes along that either encompasses what it is, or they look back and they say, Oh, this was that Mm -hmm. before the case. Mm -hmm. And because you're dealing in these, you know, what's in, I remember reading Philip K. Dick and they talked about the woo of an object, you know, the WU and, and it having this kind of Confucian um, identity value to something being just perfectly made, even if it was a sort of um, abstractness. And so your right. pieces flirt with being something that you can see in nature and something that's abstract. And that's really I, hard to categorize. I, I keep it ambiguous. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, because, you know, it's it's really about feeling and sense of the person who wears it Mm -hmm. so i don't want it to be like a specific thing Mm -hmm. i mean i i design it with 
something specific in my mind, mm-hmm. but they should be able to see what they want to see right. in a piece. And yeah, I mean, because it's clean, but not clean like architectural sense. Right. And it's organic, but it's not a copy of nature form. Right. You know, we've we've talked with several people on the program about dealing with depression and using art as an mm-hmm. outlet for that. And we, Luke Chu, mm-hmm. um, and we talked about him and how, it, you know, drug addiction was, was part of the way that he, he dealt with his depression for a very, very long time. And we talked to Lindsay Way, who, um, who talked about using music and just an art and anything she could use to escape the, um, the um, position that she was in, you know, a kind of impossible position of being the, the child caretaker of a, of an adult. And, one thing that is a common thread of these things is that creativity is a good part of the solution of dealing with depression. Mm-hmm. The better part of creativity is creation, which is actually making something and having it go out into the world and getting the feedback from that. Mm-hmm. And that being a building block of a regiment that helps get you out of, out of a state of depression. And the other thing being a support system that you need support that you need to be able to have people in your life who can pick up a little bit of the weight as you move on, but you have to set your own boundaries. And Mm -hmm. in every case, um, people who have done well have had this. And, um, you know, I think that as we see more of your work, as we see more of it get out there and you've, you've been covered by a lot of the bigger blogs and that just like every social media situation, you have to follow a lot of people to get followers. Um, but you want to make sure that you're really focusing on, putting back into the work the things that you pull out of your daily life. And that's what I think people respond to, mm-hmm. that they do put into your work what they take from their lives. And so there's always going to be a crossover. Right. But I I give up on social media thing, by the way. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, in real life, mm-hmm. I don't really trust person whom everyone loves right because i think it's fake and it's impossible Mm -hmm. like if you live honestly Mm -hmm. it's impossible right and i think i mean everyone who creates art if if they create to create for themselves then it's impossible for broad people to love it right it's it's such specific thing and but I also think that those people aren't thinking about commerce. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Like, you know, I want to make living off my jewelry. Sure. So I understand the numbers. Mm-hmm. It's important. But I stop making posts only to get likes. Right. It just don't make sense anymore. Right. Well, you know, I think that a lot of people too, part of that support system that a lot of people need and specifically in your industry is that you almost, you have to get to a point where, you, where you've got interns of your own that can handle social media and yeah. those, those types of, of things because they are their own things that it's really difficult to be creating a line of work, producing, overseeing the manufacturer, shipping stuff back and forth, doing trade shows and be doing all of your own social media that it's, you, you there's not enough hours in the day. I always say this. There's never enough hours in the day. <laughs> that, um, But certainly at the point that you're at, you've had a great degree of success because of actual personal word of mouth. Right. And um, people that are in that circle of people that know people that know you that expands outward. That the good part of social media, what I think it was supposed to be when it was set up, was a way of contacting people that you don't see every day. Mm-hmm. And the idea that like-minded people like the same things so that odds are I could be friends with the friends of my friends. Mm -hmm. And that has been that one and two degrees of separation. That early part of social media has definitely worked. When you want to go beyond that, that's when it becomes sort of an exercise in, I'm not going to say futility, but it's an exercise. And that, again, because a lot of the people that you know and hang out with are also artists who have their own followings, Mm -hmm. that people will see your jewelry on someone with Catherine Brannick or Lindsay Way or Jessica Adams or Christine Wu um, or Michael Rooker <laughs> that, um, you know, that um, that they'll ask, oh, wow, where'd you get that? And then they can say, oh, I got this from, you know, Adnohia. And, and then they seek it out. And because it's more of a boutique thing, it's not super common, it's not mass produced, that there is the understanding that they're getting really wearable art. 
and there's yeah. a handful of, of designers who I think that that isn't an overstatement of, but that um, becomes a, a bit of the, the narrative that moves forward and a correct narrative. But I think that might be a good place to stop. Okay. But I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being my guest. <laughs> thank you for and having me. And my partner me. in life. Um, so, uh, again, this was um, Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I'm Matt Kennedy. You have been listening to I Honda Kennedy, um, who designs under the name of Adnohia, which is A D N O H I A. You can look her up. Uh, she has an Etsy store. She's got a website. Um, she's got pieces carried in several shops um, worldwide. It is boutique stuff. It's great. I highly endorse it and uh, look forward to speaking to all of you again soon.